Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Time of day. This is episode 27 of Americans Watching the Footy. I am Ethan Castle. I am Benjamin Castle. Brian Harambe, the footy cat, is sitting right next to us. And all three of us, and all of you listening, all have something in common. We all kicked goals against the West Coast Eagles this week. Yay! Yay! So congratulations on being part of this tremendous effort. As you probably know by now, the Western Bulldogs tied the all-time record for... Individual goal kickers in a single game with 16. And I'm severely disappointed that all of us couldn't make it 17. You got to think that out of this entire fandom, we could have at least one more person able to kick a goal against whatever that defense was. But hell, we still won by 101 points. And apparently we are all the Western Bulldogs now. And honestly, I can kind of get behind that. I can't get behind it this coming week when they play Geelong, but we'll visit Geelong. We'll visit the Bulldogs win over the Eagles, although... We're going to try to dwell on that one as briefly as possible because the Eagles are bad and we've spent enough time ripping on them. We have. And we'll have time to in our mid-season report guard segments in the coming weeks as teams go through their bye weeks. But right now we're going to pivot and talk about teams and games are actually good. I had been saying for a while, you know, we hadn't had any games that came down to the final siren and we got to this round and both had their share of controversy with them, including the very first game of the round, a dandy of a Friday night affair in which the Swans beat Richmond 16-10-106 to 15-10-100. Benjamin, why don't you start us off here with your observations beyond just the officiating in the final second? Well, a couple of the usual suspects for the Swans this year were up to their normal proficiency and or excellence. Hattie McCartan was active early, got four intercept marks in all, was quieter as the game went on, but for the second week in a row, I liked what I saw from him when he pushed a bit more forward, helping with some of their forward half pressure, keeping the ball close to, if not in their forward 50, and forcing some turnovers that way. And then Buddy Franklin now has 1,023 goals after another five in this round opener. Yes, we still write what number it is for some unknown reason. Fun to keep track of when someone's numbers are this high. And because we've got a test to see how many more Jake Kolajashny is going to have to score to catch him. Man, I really thought Jake was going to pull closer again this week. He has three now. Hopefully the butt tattoo was updated after last round. One area where I didn't expect the Swans to succeed nearly as much as they did was in the ruck because Peter Adams was up to the task against Toby Nankurison and Ivan Soldo drawing pretty close to even and being a really high clearance getter again. 
shows his ability outside of the pure ruck contests that we saw glimpses of at Port Adelaide. Laddams led the contest with nine clearances of his own when Luke Parker had seven as well. I've said before that I'm not a Peter Laddams fan, mostly stemming from punching Tom Lynch in the dick, but... I've got to say, he played a hell of a game. Tom Hickey was a laid out because of a toe injury, leaving Laddams on his own. I thought Nankervitz was going to wipe the floor with him, and Laddams not only did a good job in the center circle, but he was really involved in possessions all over the ground as the game went on, and as the Swans rallied in this one, they trailed by as much as 33 in the second quarter. They were down 25 at half. They got it down to six with just a couple seconds left in the third quarter, trailed by 14 again after a Prestia goal. And after one by Jack Graham, but Franklin put the Swans ahead with career goal number 10-23. Sam Wicks got open for a big goal to expand the lead to seven with eight minutes remaining after some forward pressure put the Tigers' defense in a corner. Isaac Heaney extended that lead to 12. Josh Gibkiss, who was on the receiving end of a lot of difficult plays in the fourth quarter, Got his first goal with three minutes left to cut the lead to six. And then it got interesting. Dion Prestia got awarded a free kick at the boundary at the siren. Simultaneously, Chad Warner kicked the ball into the stands in celebration. He thought the game was over. He had heard the siren, not the free kick. And if he did hear the whistle, maybe he thought he was getting the free kick because Prestia got him in the face. The two of them were tied up pretty well near the end of that. But the standard this season has been, if you delay the game by not facilitating the resumption of play after a free kick... That's a 50, and haven't seen it like this before. One, right at the end of the game, and two, where it was kicked into the stands, and pretty far into the stands by the looks of it. But this is the first time all season that the umpires really used common sense to make a key judgment, and we saw some of that later in the round as well. And one way or another, regardless of how that was going to be awarded, we think it was adjudicated correctly. This decision and the direct impact it had on deciding the game is an inflection point for umpiring, at least in this season and maybe beyond. This was something that should have happened sooner and should have been the standard long before it became the standard. Hopefully this is the trendsetter moving forward because we had just talked after round 10 about this sort of issue. Broad takeaways from this game. First off, Richmond put Josh Gibkiss on Buddy and he did a really good job on him in the first half before Buddy got loose. I thought it was the sort of move that is going to benefit Gibkiss in the long run, regardless of how he fared. And it was a mixed bag, with Buddy obviously getting the last laugh. Gibkiss was on the ground for 94% of the game. That's the most out of any Tiger. And he pretty much always went to Buddy. So his success on that front throughout the first stage of the game and somewhat into the second half can definitely be a blueprint for his longer-term success there. It's just strange that Richmond would do this instead of make the move that tries to help them win this game in the short term by putting someone more seasoned on him. Robbie Tarrant and Dylan Grimes were also in the back line, was thinking maybe Grimes would get that assignment, but the other two fullbacks were a bit more free-roaming, and that's because Buddy was the one guy they went to. And I know you've been critical of the fact that they've still been so Buddy-centered, and I've been at times as well, but this is what they're paying him to do to have these sorts of performances. And look at some of the outs that the Swans had as well. Nick Blakey was a laid out with the flu. Colin O'Reardon replaced him. You mentioned Hickey. Josh P. Kennedy is going to be out for an extended period with his hamstring injury. And it was another down game for Isaac Heaney. And with how well he started the season, I have to think that he's carrying some sort of injury. What I think these last few weeks have shown us is that the Swans' first 18 to 22 guys are as good as any. But that next 8 to 10 
is lacking behind. And when they miss a few top players, those remaining top guys really have to step up. And while they did in the second half, that's not exactly a sustainable recipe. And that's especially not sustainable when Buddy's probably going to be out next week. We're saying probably because even though he struck Trent Cotchin and was suspended for a game, the Swans are appealing and are going to try to say that it wasn't intentional. I don't understand that at all. It was intentional. You could argue for it being less severe because he hit him with an open hand instead of closed fist. But from every angle, it looks like a suspension-worthy offense. And they're only playing the D's next round. So uh, that's great. But the Swans continued their prowess going through the middle. I've probably been more impressed by Chad Warner than almost any young player this year. Another 27 disposals and 541 meters gained for him. Jake Lloyd with 26 and 10 intercepts was huge in the back lines. Parker mentioned him with his clearances, also had nine score involvements to go along with his 26 touches, 559 meters gained. The two captains stepped up. Callum Mills, 20 disposals, seven marks and seven tackles. Dane Rampey with eight marks. We've both been critical of him early on this season. I maintain that he is a second half and fourth quarter player, and he looked every bit the part in this game. Additionally, James Rowbottom came back into the side after his suspension. He had eight tackles and figured largins and key moments. In terms of the scoring, other than Buddy, Sam Reed kicked three goals and two behinds. Will Hayward with two goals straight. Hayward's a guy that I didn't really notice these past couple years, and on that front for me has been a pleasant surprise overall. was hoping that Brayden Campbell might get a bit more of the ball, but he's another name in a very crowded midfield and half-forward group. For Richmond, this is a game where you're going to take a lot away. Obviously, the ending, not just losing with some controversy, but blowing a 33-point lead, going from up 33 to down by as much as 14, is going to leave a mark. It's going to hurt, but it's the sort of game where they had their moments. They had some success, especially in the first half, and once again showed some signs of still being a top-caliber team. They still sit in ninth following this loss. They've got their bye this round, so we'll be talking about them during our bonus episode this week. Throughout these next three bye weeks, we're going to be analyzing each of the six teams that have the week off, kind of giving a mid-season report of sorts. But with this loss, they're going to have to hit the ground running after the bye, and it won't be easy. Hosting Port Adelaide and Carlton, then facing Geelong. Those are all at the MCG, even though Geelong is technically the home team. And then they've got the real test, round 16, when they host the Eagles. (laughs) On a more serious note, though, while Josh Gimkus did get exposed a bit in the second half, this is still, like I said, a game that's going to make him grow and learn a ton. On the negative side, Richmond were just... Too mistake-prone. The Tigers were undisciplined at times, mentioned that late goal they gave away because they couldn't handle Sydney's forward pressure. It was not Daniel Rioli's smoothest game. They also gave away a couple of dumb 50-meter penalties, including one by Shea Bolton to give Brayden Campbell a goal. It was a delay-of-game penalty and a fully deserved one at that. At that point, the Swans had gone 38 minutes without a goal and trailed by 33, largest deficit they had faced all night. So that could be seen as a pretty significant turning point. There's also a big goal to go into halftime. The play that earned Buddy his suspension also earned the Tigers a free kick that led to a Bolton goal. But Franklin got it back a minute later, right before halftime, to send them into the break down 25. The lead got back up to as much as 31 early in the second half. Jaden Short scored off of a setup from Hugo Ralph Smith, who was back in the lineup because Marlon Pickett had a migraine. 
Unfortunate that Pickett had to miss both games in the uniform that he designed. Hopefully they'll wear it again this year just for him, but great to see Hugo Ralph Smith back in there. I'm telling you, he's 22 under 22 material. He reminds me a lot of Brad Close in terms of his speed from the back half, facilitating play, pushing the flow all the way to the other end, and leading to good pressure and and a lot of scores. And he contributed himself with two goals from the back. I feel like you can kind of combine the back half work of close and the forward half of maybe someone more like Brad Hill in that case. But I was really happy that Ralph Smith got a chance. Short, you mentioned he had two goals. Jake Bolton with a goal, two behinds. I was wondering where the extra scoring would come from for Richmond with Tom Lynch out. They had a bunch of players with two goals. Shane Edwards and Jack Graham as well. They were handballing a lot more as we expected with Tom Lynch out, but they just weren't able to get on the right end of some of those, a little bit clumsy at times. They'll have some time to adjust if they need to with Dubai, and they should also be getting Noah Balta back after that. One guy that I know you've been critical of this year was Jason Castagna, and he was invisible in this game. So if you're looking for all the various reasons that the Tigers lost this game, you could point to... That Bolton 50-meter penalty, you could point to a lot of sequences, but Jason Castagna's overall invisibility did not help. Stats of note for the Tigers, we mentioned Ralph Smith. He had five score involvements, as did Jaden Short. Short not only with two goals, but 22 disposals and 609 meters gained. Trent Cotchin, team-high 26 disposals. Dion Prestia with 25 disposals and nine score involvements. Liam Baker was one of his more visible performances. I thought he did a really nice job. 22 disposals and 8 intercepts. Both Graham and Toby Nankervis each had 9 tackles. And Dylan Grimes, 12 intercepts. This is not the sort of loss that should undo the Tigers' season as much as blowing a lead of that size hurts because they showed a lot of positives in the process. It's just they were surprisingly undisciplined and... Sometimes inaccurate in the forward 50, which is hard to believe for a team that kicked 15-10, but there were a couple shots that missed completely, went out on the full, including a couple by Dusty even, who didn't have his smoothest game up front, which is where he's been deployed since coming back. But again, Richmond have shown all the concern from when they were 1-2 and two and when they were 2-4 and four was overblown. They are definitely a finals caliber team. A lot of last year's struggles were much more injury-based than anything else. And they're going to be in it the whole way. I think that's pretty clear. I don't think this game is going to wear on them mentally, especially with a week to let things kind of dissipate before getting back at it and getting ready for what's become a really fun interstate rivalry with Port Adelaide. Having said that, they still do need to figure out where they're going to make up for missing Tom Lynch, at least for one more round in all likelihood. His hamstring injury is a bit longer term than Balta's, and so that's something that needs to be addressed immediately ahead of that Port game. In terms of coaching and adjusting, my biggest takeaway is, once again, John Longmire doing the right things at halftime. A lot of people, ourselves included, were surprised by Callum Mills being put behind the ball so much in the second half. He spent 73% of the second half in defense, but that was the right spot for him. Was good in marking contests there, started the ball back the right way. And ended up helping turn the tide that way. May not have been the most noticeable contributor when you're looking at the biggest name up forward and the flashier midfield. But without that adjustment from Longmire and and Mills playing as well as he did back there, I don't think the Swans would be that close in this one. And the scoreboard speaks for itself. They allowed 68 points in the first half and only 32 in the second half. One final note on this one. 
I do want to mention this is the second game this year where both teams have scored 100 points. And once again, it came with a shitload of free kicks. This time, 61 in all, though it didn't seem quite as noticeable as it did in that Hawthorne-Brisbane game. I think they were calling things less tightly comparatively to that one. There was definitely a little bit of over-officiating, but for the most part, this was just a very enjoyable, fun game to watch. And it's a shame these teams don't meet up again during the home and away season. The Lions, dis- the Lions discipline, in terms of straight-up discipline and in terms of handling the ball, was off last week in their loss against Hawthorne. Took a bit to get their gavel legs back. They struggled throughout the first half against Greater Western Sydney, a surprise in more ways than one. Ended up going down by 30 points in the mid-first quarter, but they ended up pulling themselves back into it around halftime. Had a solid third quarter and were able to keep control from there despite a late surge by the Giants. Brisbane 16-14-110. Some pleasant surprises for both teams. Some younger players from Brisbane showing their worth. As well as signs that Mark McVay's system has more to it than just an offensive outbreak against the Eagles. Because everybody does that. Three teams came back from at least 30-point deficits in this round. Only the second time that's happened in the last 20 years. We already mentioned the Swans. Well, the Lions did it as well, although they did it in a bit of a different fashion, erasing almost all of it by halftime and getting up by 21 after three quarters. GWS actually jumped out to a 37-7 lead barely 12 minutes into this game. 12 minutes of clock time, if we're going to be exact. Lions cut it to 12 by the end of the first quarter, went into halftime down just three, and took the lead early in the second half. And never gave it back, though after opening up a 25-point advantage and holding a 23-point lead midway through the fourth, GWS did a good job getting back into it from there. And while it doesn't change the outcome, this is the first time in the last 18 games the Giants have outscored their opponents in the fourth quarter. Now, we've talked about in a couple prior games, like the one against the Eagles and when they blew out the Suns, that the fourth quarter was irrelevant. I think it was more significant in this case because they trailed by just nine late, Although Lincoln McCarthy got a goal to stretch the lead back out to 15, and the Lions were able to wind the clock down over the final minutes. But what are your takeaways from this game? You were mostly focused on this one while I was watching the Cats. Give me your thoughts. I was critical of the Lions' defense early, especially Harris Andrews. Appeared to be targeted early, building off the Hawks' success against him last week. He was exposed early and often. Meanwhile, the Giants' defense wasn't stellar. But it was cool seeing that Harry Himmelberg playing halfback looks to be part of Mark McVeigh's long-term plan. I liked some of his groundwork there in defense, though a big issue throughout this game for the Giants was their kickouts. After surrendering behinds, they weren't making the right decisions out of the goal square, and that allowed some easier scoring shots for the Lions. Overall, I was thinking throughout the first quarter that Brisbane still had their difficulties against Hawthorne on their mind, and maybe that was weighing them down, and maybe they hadn't adjusted to what the Giants were doing now. Maybe they were thinking it was going to be more of a one-off thing to run up the score against West Coast. Clearly wasn't. They clearly has different ideas in mind. Chris Fagan kept his plan pretty simple. Lions ended up being more disciplined in the last three quarters than in the first, and that ended up being what decided it. And it was some of their younger players driving their success. Notice some good plays from Jared Berry throughout the ground. Berry ended up having the second most disposals in the game. He had 33 to go along with 10 marks in a really impressive game. Only Lockie Neal had more. Surprise there. And then Devin Robertson kind of came out of nowhere for me in this one. 
This was his first action this year. He had been named the sub once before, had a couple direct goal assists and seven score involvements, including a couple goals himself, was really crafty with the ball in hand. Surprised that he didn't end up getting nominated for goal of the round himself. We had some great kicking that ended up resulting in him being snubbed, but I was surprised that it was younger players not named Zach Bailey that impressed me the most in this one, and it showed that the Lions have much more going for them than their established core. And maybe that'll be something that helps them get over their straight set finals woes. Again, I only watched this game in a casual capacity, but I was really impressed by the bits and pieces I saw from Devin Robertson. I was surprised he got into the team. I was surprised Mitch Robinson was once again the injury sub, which he ended up not being needed. But Devin Robertson's got some flash to his game, and he's a lot of fun to watch. This is, as we've said repeatedly, a super talented and deep team, and it's been hard to identify what it is that's missing, although over the last few rounds, clearly there has been something missing. Even in this game, they were obviously far from perfect. But just overwhelming teams with talent certainly isn't a bad way to go about business, and it's a pretty good problem to have. If I can identify one area that was a problem, Greater Western Sydney was plus eight in center clearances. I think a lot of that does have to do with proper adjustments these past couple weeks. Stephen Canelio did very well in the center circle again with six center clearances. A big part of his nine-score involvement day ended up kicking a goal himself, had 25 disposals, six marks, five tackles. The do-it-all player that you expect him to be. However, Brisbane managed to compensate for some of their center circle issues by evening out the clearance stats. They were plus eight in stoppage clearances. Maybe it's something about closer quarters in those stoppages that was driving Brisbane's success. I'm not exactly sure what it is at this point, but interesting comparison to note there in the different types of clearances. Oscar McInerney did dominate the hitouts. Lions won hitouts 51 to 22. Was surprised to see Brayden Bruce on the bench for the second straight week. Was thinking that, especially against such a potent ruckman in McInerney and no slouch of a second ruck in Darcy Ford, that McVeigh would go with Bruce and Flynn. I think this game probably convinced him that Bruce is still the number one guy. Maybe Bruce was also slowed in getting back from his illness, but the report initially seemed to be that he was good to go. So it seemed to be more of a coach's decision. I'm just disappointed that it's going to be another week before we get to watch GWS, because even though finals are pretty much completely out of the question for them, all of a sudden they're a much more compelling team to watch after the form they've showed these last couple rounds. Unfortunately, that first game back will be against North, but then their schedule really picks up. Their final 12 games are a gauntlet with only one that really looks like it should be a comfortable win. And who knows what Essendon will look like by then. A lot of this is speculation with how far off it is, but these next few rounds, it's actually going to be really compelling to watch the Giants, even if their ceiling is probably somewhere around 12th place. I think they've done a lot within these couple of games to inspire us to think, hey, the future is still pretty bright for these guys. There's talent there. And I don't think this is so much a negative reflection on Leon Cameron as it might just be at some point things get stale. You need a fresh voice. You need a new system. Josh Kelly with two goals, 31 disposals and six marks. Isaac Cumming, good thing he's going to have a week to rest his legs because he went 702 meters, also had 10 score involvements and 29 disposals. And the Giants may have another quality forward in James Peatling, who finished with three goals in the behind. Defensively, they still need more help, as we can tell. But there seems to be something on the way with Sam Taylor. He finished with 11 intercepts. And I think 
he still has a lot of room to get even better. So our tone on the Giants has completely changed for the better in the last few weeks. We can get more into big picture stuff during our bi-week report. The Lions don't get to rest just yet. They might be a little disappointed with how taxing this game was because they've got a huge trip out to Perth to take on Fremantle this coming round. If they had any hopes to bounce back with a comfortable win and then really rest up heading into what should be an awesome game, that did not happen. But they had some good depth performances, like we mentioned, Devin Robertson, and some big performances from some of the usual suspects. Well, next week is the Lockie Neal Bowl. Lockie having started his career at Fremantle, he had another very active game. The disposal leader with 39, had nine clearances, six tackles, five marks, gained 498 meters, and kicked two goals. He is a career-best kicker now to go along with him handling the ball at his 2020 levels, if not better. Would not be shocked if we see him with another Brownlow medal around his neck when this season is done. Harris Andrews and Marcus Adams each had nine intercepts. Adams was the better player of the two early on. Andrews grew into the contest. Overall, Lions have done well intercepting and moving the ball from the back, even when they haven't been as great getting back in defense. Lincoln McCarthy, just 12 touches, but four goals and five marks. And I want to mention Jared Berry again, just to go through his numbers. A goal and two behinds, 33 disposals, 10 marks, and a team high 674 meters gained. I use the phrase pleasant surprise a decent amount, but he's one of the players for which that is the most applicable. This is the sixth straight 100-point showing for the Brisbane Lions. First time they've done that since 2002. You know who was part of that 2002 team, of course? Oh, of course. All the three-time premiership players with the Brisbane Lions, including the one and only Alistair Lynch, who was the boundary rider for this one. Unfortunately, we received sobering news the day after this game regarding one Bobby Hill, who, for all we know, may have played his last game with GWS. He kicked the first goal of the game, and we didn't know at the time how inspiring that performance was because he found out midweek that he had been diagnosed with testicular cancer. The Giants announced that Sunday. He is having surgery Tuesday and taking an indefinite break from the game. He's such a fun player to watch and an upstanding guy on and off the oval. He'll be missed there, and we wish him all the best in his recovery, and we'll see where he ends up following this season. He requested a trade to Essendon last summer, which was denied, and who knows how this diagnosis and treatment will change things there. But that's looking longer term. In the short term, it's about his health and well-being. While Benjamin was focusing on that game, I was, of course, watching Geelong take on Adelaide. Cats won this one by 42-15-7-97 to 7-13-55. Earlier in the week, Chris Scott was extended through the 2024 season, perhaps the end of the window with this core, although considering how many young guys have looked solid at various stages for the Cats, I don't know if they need to do a full rebuild. I think they can do enough with trades and free agency to patch things up, but it's pretty clear already where this team's strengths and weaknesses are and where they're going to be moving forward unless changes are made. The defense is excellent. Tom Stewart might be the best defender in the entire sport. Tom Atkins had an insane game with 17 tackles. Sam DeConing finally got that Rising Star nomination he deserved. He finished with 11 intercepts and 9 marks. And the forward group is, once again, outstanding. Big game from Jeremy Cameron, despite getting hit in the balls in the final moments. But the midfield still leaves a lot to be desired. Cam Guthrie puts up good numbers. I think Brandon Parfitt's played well the last couple weeks. Brad Close, the league has adjusted to him, and he's going to have to find a new way to impact the game, or more accurately, the coaches are going to have to find a way for him to impact the game. 
Mitch Duncan hasn't been what he was a couple years ago. Isaac Smith is all right, but showing his age. This team definitely has weaknesses in the ruck. Mark Blitzov's got outdone by Riley O'Brien there. But we're all here to talk about one man and one man only, and that's Brian Myers, who finally figured it out. Three-goal performance, a couple where he kind of snuck behind, and then the last one was a great play that I thought could have been a goal of the week nominee. Understandable why it wasn't. There were some other really deserving ones that we'll get to at the end of the show. But he got the ball from a spinning Jeremy Cameron, who was spinning to get out of tackle, then spun around himself and scored. It was a great play, and it was just awesome to see him have by far his best game of the year, maybe his best game of the last two years. Not only three goals, but 20 disposals and six tackles. Even though his kicking ability outside of set shots makes it tough to play him in the midfield, he's so fast and such a good tackler that the team's decided that they can withstand some of the issues with kicking accuracy because, you know, he's really good with handballs. He's a great shot in the forward 50, and it seems like his confidence is back up and the work with Eddie Betts is paying off because he was attempting and converting tougher shots, whereas just a couple weeks ago, he was even struggling to convert really easy ones, like the goal he had against St. Kilda. It was blatantly obvious how much he lacked confidence. So that was nice to see. That said, this was not a sterling performance by Geelong by any means. I think they were fortunate to have the Crows at home. They were fortunate to not have to face Taylor Walker, who was out in COVID protocols. They also didn't have to face Josh Rochelle. He was being rested in his return from a court thigh. And frankly, the Crows, outside of a couple of pieces, really just Ben Keyes and Rory Laird, they weren't very good. I know Fox Footy likes to give out their letter grades at the end of each round. I would give Geelong probably a B or a B plus from this game. Fox gave them an A, which seems a bit high, and Fox gave the Crows a C minus when I think they should have been given probably a D. I just thought they weren't very good. They were inaccurate inside 50. They were turnover prone. Despite dominating center of the ground and clearances and preventing Geelong from taking a lot of marks inside 50, they just didn't do a lot right. This was an injured version of a not great, mostly young and inexperienced team on the road. And the Cats did what they needed to do. They got off to a really slow start. Fortunately, the Crows kicked six behinds in the first quarter. And then Geelong took it to him in the second, got off to a slow start in the third, but rallied, finished the third quarter strong. It was really that excellent goal by Myers, followed by a goal that I thought might have been Jeremy Cameron's best of the week, even though he had another that made Goal of the Week nominees. He spun out of a Rory Laird tackle and scored. Part of a six-goal run for the Cats that spanned the second half of the third quarter and first seven minutes of the fourth quarter. In all, during that stretch, they outscored the Crows 37-3 to put the game away. After a Ben Keyes dribbler had cut the lead to 53-44, the Crows did not get another goal until a little under 13 minutes remaining when Ned McHenry finally got one. It was not his best game. It was not Shane McAdams' best game. And those two would have really needed to step up in order for Adelaide to have a shot. So in all, Cats took care of business. Well, that doesn't leave me much to say about the Cats, aside from some remarks on Shannon Neal's debut. He came into the side when Gary Roan was announced to be out with hamstring tightness. A taller half forward who didn't necessarily have success in marking contests, but made a lot of them contest when they may not otherwise have become that. In that respect, an impactful debut, even though he may not have gotten a lot of touches of the ball, only seven. Still like what I saw from him nonetheless. I thought 
aside from just not having hands on this day, not being able to secure those marks, I thought he did a really good job. He positioned himself well. He was active getting to the ball. He's a big, strong, physical presence and hopefully could get some work as a second ruck. He did end up getting three hitouts, third most on the team behind Hawkins and the obvious Mark Blitzobs, who was really forced to be a one-man show in that spot. But even though it was a little rough around the edges, could credit that to first game jitters. Neil did a nice job and looks like a pretty polished player who isn't going to make too many rookie mistakes. I think there might be some other guys with a higher ceiling, but I think his floor is really high. And he's a guy I'd like to see in there more, especially if Reese Stanley is injured long term. And just to have more talls, because that's definitely something that this team lacks all around the lineup. And he instantly provides that. He's a big guy. Six foot eight, athletic, good sense on the field. He's someone I'd like to see out there again, whether or not it's necessitated by injuries. You mentioned a lot of the key pieces for Jalog already. I'll just read through those stats. Mark Blitzovs had 31 hitouts, 23 disposals, 9 tackles, 6 marks, 456 meters gained. Jack, a lot of trades, master of a few of them. Joel Selwood had 24 disposals and 13 tackles. One of his most functional games around the ball in a long time. Cameron Guthrie with 34 disposals and 8 tackles. And Tom Stewart leading the way. 40 disposals, an obscene 17 intercepts and 16 marks, 874 meters gained, and three votes in the Golden Fist. Man! I would say he's getting the three votes for the Brown Low as well. I would expect it, though I would love to hear Gil say G. Myers three votes at some point. Atkins and Selwood together contributed to Geelong being plus 22 in tackles, 100 to 78, and plus 11 in that inside 50, 21 to 10. We already mentioned Sam DeConing is this round's rising star. He had 11 intercepts and 9 marks. It was a quieter game for Mark O'Connor. Jed Buse has been somewhat quiet throughout this season, and there have been a few games where Jake Cole-Jashney's made some key errors. He made a couple in this game, but when Atkins, DeConing, and Stewart do their thing, plus Selwood being able to provide tackles even at his advanced age, this is still a really solid defensive unit. One that's effective even without Jack Henry. Yeah. Um I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna say my piece on, on the Crows now. Even though there weren't as many star pieces for the Crows, whether expected or not, they have been doing a decent amount of things right. It's just their inaccuracy that's killed them a lot of the time. Seven goals, thirteen behinds in this one. They've been close in the number of scoring shots the past few rounds and just haven't had the points to show for it. They've been getting a decent amount of entries, and a lot of that has been off the back of some great clearance work, often by Ben Keyes. This past Saturday, it was more for Rory Laird and Riley O'Brien. Laird with 14 along with his 38 disposals and 8 tackles, O'Brien with 9. He also had 46 hitouts, and a number of those were to advantage, and 7 tackles as well. Keyes may not have been active in the clearances, was pushing more forward a lot of the time, got a goal on 29 touches. Also a lot more forward, Jordan Dawson. Didn't have any goals to show for it. 27 disposals, still gained 579 meters. But without Rochelle and without Walker, some of the Crows' more solid midfielders ended up having to go forward more, and there was some good to be seen in that. The biggest positive takeaway for me for the Crows in this game is the work that Darcy Fogarty did. He had been in and out of the side. This was a day for him to really step up with Tex being out. He ended up up kicking 3-1 on 11 touches with 5 marks. He was the end point of a lot of their best offense. 
And now that we've seen that from him again, it's clear that the Crows need to be able to find some sort of balance between running their offense in a way that suits his skill set as well as Taylor Walker's. As much as the Swans just had Buddy for this round, you can't consistently have just one main target in the forward 50. If they can learn how to position and work toward both techs with Riley Philthorpe hopefully in there as well, they could have some good things brewing in terms of their attack. Their defense is still lacking, but they can more immediately figure out a better forward strategy, and that's going to be an important task for Matthew Nix through the rest of this season. The one Adelaide defender I really noticed in this game was Nick Murray because he was the victim of a few of Tom Hawkins and Jeremy Cameron's big plays. Unfortunately, you worry that this could be a game that hurts Riley Philthorpe because he was pretty much invisible. I really hope they give him another chance next time out because in case you haven't listened to us before, we make it blatantly obvious that we really like this kid and we want to see more and more of him. He deserves more of a chance to prove himself. And as a young player, one bad game like this should not completely take him out of the squad. Hopefully the coaches see that the same way we do. Thing is, though, Elliot Himmelberg was omitted in this game, has been doing well in the two, so wouldn't be shocked if he gets the key forward nod. Though I think there are a lot of ways that you could incorporate Phil Thorpe that don't necessarily have him being that key guy. So in the first two time slots of the round, we had two teams come back from 30 points down. We also did it the third time slot of the round, and there was only one game then. Ladies and gentlemen, the Jake Bowie streak has ended, and it fittingly ended at his jumper number, 17 straight wins for the Demons, because Narm fell to Frio at the G in front of a crowd that should have been a hell of a lot bigger. Narm 7-14-56, defeated by Fremantle 14-10-94. This game turned in the first quarter when Melbourne lost their defensive leader to friendly fire. Stephen May was concussed. His head collided with Jake Lever's shoulder, obviously inadvertent. His absence didn't reflect on the scoreboard at first, though. It seemed like even when May went down, the Demons were in control. They got up by as much as 30, leading 42-12 and 43-13. Then they got outscored 81-13 the rest of the game. Sam Wiedemann hitting the post midway through the second quarter, a chance to put them up 30 instead. They led by just 25, might have really been their last chance to keep the gap. And even if he had, considering the second half Fremantle played, it might not have made a difference. The Dockers were just the better team throughout. Obviously, May's absence was a part of that. But I had said a few weeks ago that Fremantle are the type of team that could give Melbourne a lot of trouble. Melbourne, Narm, everyone's already joked, you know, is Melbourne streak still alive because they lost as Narm? Ha ha, very original. But I'm crash. But they were able to penetrate the zone, create a lot of trouble with speed, and their forward pressure was not only exceptional, but those same forwards who usually really make their mark defensively also had really big offensive games. You expect that out of Lockie Schultz, and he had four goals to show for it, but he didn't expect that scoring impact going into this game as much for Michael Walters, despite what he had been able to do in years past. He created pressure that helped him score a goal in the jumper he designed. Was awesome seeing that Fremantle actually had a second version of their jumper, a mainly white one to avoid a clash with. The D's would hope that more teams do that in the future with their indigenous jumpers, because also those will likely sell. But this is more about Michael Frederick, who we've praised a lot this year for his pressure, but hadn't really talked about in terms of offensive production since really the first round. Frederick ended up with two goals, including one with a really nice deke on Trent Rivers and 11 score involvements in all. And then before he scored his second goal, he had the tap of the round, the tap of the season, the tap of the decade, a no-look tap 
back to Lockie Schultz for the last goal of the third quarter. At that point, I was really worrying about whether Narm knew how to play from behind. It's not a situation they'd been in really all year. And there were a lot of people that saying they hadn't been playing as well as they had in the run-up to the flag last year. And some of that showed here. You just have to wonder how much of an impact May's absence had because the way Fremantle was able to penetrate their zone made me think that a lot of those holes could have been plugged just by having May back in there. Harrison Petty, who initially filled that hole, ended up being off and on with an apparent knee issue in the second half, and they were also without Tom McDonald. But nonetheless, they were able to pull Melbourne's defenders out of better marking locations, and that created some really great opportunities for them. Also surprising that Sean Darcy ended up outdoing Max Gaughan in the center circle. Was thinking that Gaughan and Jackson would really wear on Darcy and Lobb, and they'd end up missing Lloyd Meek? Not at all. And Lobb had a superb game as a whole, outside of his seven hitouts. His three goals came at important times, and he was the steadying forward presence that Frio had lacked in their past couple games when they had been so pitiful in terms of scoring. Again, Frederick and Walters dictated so much of this game. I've compared Fremantle's defense to a full-court press by a basketball team, and in turn, Frederick, a lot of weeks, is that guard who's going to force a lot of turnovers and score off of turnovers, but not score much in a set offense. This time, he was able to do both. He was much more versatile, much more well-rounded offensively than we've seen. Uh, When he takes his game to this level, very few teams can match up with Fremantle at all. I think this was largely just a stinker for Narm after they got up by 30. They just didn't play that well. I'm really glad these teams match up again. Hopefully, there will be a much better crowd at Optus than there was at the G for this game. And who knows? Maybe there will be a better crowd at the G if they meet up again at some point there sometime in September. I really enjoy watching Rory Lobb play. It felt like he had a lot more touches than he did. He finished with three goals, a behind, nine marks, and seven hitouts have a forward who can move back into the center square like he does and end up impacting clearances and then still making an impact in the forward 50 is an incredible asset. Luke Ryan was actually the top guy for the Dockers by ranking points with 29 disposals, 14 marks. He gained 562 meters. Andrew Brayshaw and Will Brody, each 28 disposals. Heath Chapman, who you still think about in the bathtub, I assume? Honestly, that might be Jordan Dawson now after round three. Whatever the case is, there was definitely a time when you thought about him in the tub, and he had a very nice game, 22 disposals and 14 marks. Hayden Young, 22 disposals, 10 marks, and 9 intercepts. This was the absolute best game I've seen from him. Brennan Cox, 19 disposals and 12 marks. And the aforementioned Lockie Schultz with not only the four goals, one behind, but also 18 disposals. Another docker that I hope gets his due recognition and respect after this one is James Aish. He matched up with Clayton Oliver throughout the second half in what I think was the best defensive adjustment that Justin Longmuir made. And he ended up equal on touches with Oliver that second half, 12 each. And he ended up having four clearances to Oliver's two after halftime. Oliver ended up with 36 disposals and gaining 512 meters. But his best work was in the first half. And with how much he dictates their movement throughout the ground... It was clear that H's good work on him limited Narm's progress overall in this one. Andrew Brayshaw won the Battle of the Brothers there, though Angus did have an active game himself. Gained the same 512 meters, actually, that Oliver did. 26 disposals and 9 intercepts. 
outranked Andrew by a little bit, but that drive back to see their parents after the game had to be a painful one for Angus. Was really happy that Toby Bedford got a chance in the main lineup. He kicked two goals in very quick succession. He's a player that I've really grown to like watching. I think he'd probably be in the 22 for a lot of clubs and 18 for a few of them. And whenever his next contract is up, if he wants a trade, I think he'll get paid handsomely in a lot of different places. But the absences in the back line ended up amounting to a lot. Longer adjusted to May's absence in the offensive approach with being able to do more down the middle in the 50-meter arc. Max Gaughan and Luke Jackson were both quiet, as I alluded to earlier. They were outdone by Darcy and Lobb. And Christian Petraka had a career-low 10 disposals. And I was shocked to not really think about him at all in this one while it was going on. Simon Goodwin said that Petraka woke up ill one way or another. He wasn't the player that he normally is. Combine all of that with no May, Petty being off and on, no McDonald, no Ed Langdon, who could have opened up the wings for the Ds in a lot of ways. And you can understand why this was a down game for them. Big chance for them to bounce back against the Swans next week. Should be an easier matchup overall for a host of reasons, especially if the Swans do end up without Buddy. I would look for that to be a bounce back game for Kaiseya Pickett because he was very quiet in this one. Fremantle was able to keep him in check. I just thought this was a really good matchup for Fremantle from the start. And they didn't get off on the right foot. They squandered some early chances and got down big. After that, they played a really good game. And it leaves us wondering, is there anything that can stop them besides water? It looks like weather won't be an issue, but they've got stiff competition coming to Optus Stadium this week as they host the Brisbane Lions. Although the round 12 schedule is great overall, I think you could make a very good argument that that is the marquee matchup. And for now, Melbourne again, I know that the whole talk of losses being learning experiences is cheesy, but when you haven't lost in 9, 10 months, it's a big chance to learn when somebody finally gets to you. It's a good reminder that you're not impervious. It's a good reminder that there's constantly work to do throughout the season. And and more than anything, it shows you where your biggest weaknesses are, how many of those can be fixed by returning players. I'm not so sure. The way Frio closes out this game, I think it would have been theirs regardless. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Thank you to Anchor by Spotify and all the other podcatchers on which you can find us. Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Stitcher, and, and more. We hope to add even more support for any podcatchers we may have missed soon so even more of your friends can listen along. Don't forget to follow our Twitter at Americans Footy if you haven't already. It's where we give our live reactions to the events of each round and put out some occasional thoughts throughout the rest of the week as well. I am personally on Twitter at BenjaminHK01 and should be more active with some of my music stuff soon. Ethan is at Castle Media and has continued with his baseball reporting. And Brian Harambe, the footy cat, is right here with his dad. He is on Instagram at catnamedgrian. We're going to try to spend as little time on this next game as possible because it was so bad. We don't need to beat a dead horse. We alluded to it in the intro. The West Coast Eagles suck. 
They lost to the Western Bulldogs by 101. They have now lost 10 games in their entire history by 100 points, and two of them have come in a 30-day span. Their average margin of defeat the past six rounds has been 82.5 points. This may be the worst established team in decades. Established being a caveat to exclude the Suns and Giants in their infancy. Really the only comparison that I've seen from a statistical perspective, especially in terms of percentage, is Fitzroy when they were on their last legs in 1995 and 96. If you want to find some positives, they are going toward the forward half of the ground. I was hoping for Isaiah Winder to continue his good work after last week. Didn't score, though I think had some good moments off the ball. Seems to have a good nose for the ball. Crumbed a couple times that led to some good plays. Tim Kelly had a very complete game. A goal, 38 disposals, 11 clearances, 6 marks, 5 tackles, 544 meters gained. Where had this been all this time? Another couple names that you'd expect to do well for the Eagles did. Andrew Gaff with 28 disposals and 4 clearances. Jack Darling with 4 goals. He seems to be back into the form that we'd expect for him. Jamie Cripps continued to, to work hard in the right areas. Ended up with a goal. He has 4 in 3 games. Brady Huff, a bit more surprising to see his work rate being so high. 23 disposals and 11 marks, though. That was because the back lines were tested early and often, and he had to step up once Jeremy McGovern went down. He has a back injury, which caused Josh Rotham to be subbed in. A like-for-like sub in a lot of respects, but you can't just replicate the interception contest prowess that McGovern has. That was exploited. The Eagles lacking in the midfield as a whole outside of Kelly was exploited. The Bulldogs just entered way too easily, way too often, and pretty much every player got in on it. As we mentioned earlier, they tied the AFL record with 16 different goal scorers. And a big driver of a lot of that success was Perth's own Tim English in his first game back, a very busy and very effective game. He's the only player that I can legitimately describe at times as a ruck mid. Didn't know that he had actually been a midfielder for most of his life before he had a growth spurt in his teens. But he's so fluid in but he's so fluid in handing off the ball. The offense flows through him throughout the ground more than any other Ruckman I've seen in my time watching the AFL thus far. And all of that contributed to the Bulldogs' biggest ever margin of victory over the Eagles, both in terms of West Coast lacking things and the Dogs being able to pile it on with their own skill. Aaron Naughton finished with four goals. He looked really sharp. Adam Trelor, a goal, two behinds, 35 disposals, 11 clearances, six marks, 544 meters gained. Jack McRae, 30 disposals. No Bailey Smith, he was out sick, but Bailey Dale, 28 disposals, 597 meters gained in a goal. Speaking of Bailey's, Bailey Williams had two goals on 23 disposals. That's, of course, the Bulldogs, Bailey Williams. Bailey J. Williams for the Eagles was one of their rucks and did all right at times, but was largely outclassed by, by English and the other Bailey Williams. Caleb Daniel, 26 disposals, 525 meters gained. He's been on a nice roll the last few weeks after a quiet start to the year. Josh Dunkley, his contributions were a little less quiet without Bailey Smith. He had a pair of goals, 25 disposals, 12 marks and 7 tackles. The Bulldogs won hitouts 44-23 and clearances 41-30. All of that because of one Mr. Tim English, who had a goal, a behind, and 25 disposals. It's a shame we didn't get to see him match up with Nick Nadnui because it would have been a really good evaluation of just how good English is. 
We know the Bulldogs run a lot through him. It would be fun to see just how he matches up against the best of the best. There are two plays in this game that really stood out for me and really exemplified the way these teams are trending. They happened within about 10 minutes of each other in the fourth quarter. First was Josh Kennedy giving up a 100-meter penalty. One ball out of Alex Keith's hands after a mark. That happens. Whatever. 50 meters. But then he basically ran right next to him and didn't get out of the way. So they gave another 50 meters, and it would have been really easy to go either a few meters behind him or off to the left or right, and he just never did that. A lot of people online have been criticizing that impeding the runner rule, but it's so easy to avoid getting that penalty that even if it's a dumb-ish rule, you shouldn't ever see it paid. I remember being so shocked when in the game that really brought me back to the AFL in 2020, that Port versus Richmond game, Dusty gave up 100 to Tom Rockliffe in the same way. That ended up leading to Keith, the former cricketer, getting his second goal, was a good contributor throughout the ground from halfback, a player that doesn't often get mentioned with so much in front of him for the dogs, and Caleb Daniel and as of late Ed Richards being more of a focus in the back, but I'm glad he got noticed as much as he did this week. And then you had Harry Edwards about 10 minutes later slam into the goalpost. Fortunately, he didn't appear to be injured. It was just the sort of blooper that really exemplifies where this Eagles team is. Don't think there's really much else to gather from this game. Don't think there's much to gather from these teams as a whole, other than how nice it is to have Tame English back and how lacking the Eagles are in the middle outside of Kelly. We'll see a much better evaluation of the dogs when they open round 12 against Geelong. The Eagles currently sit at 49.7%. No further comment needed. I am grateful that you, the Eagles fan, had to take that game on, and I was able to enjoy what I thought was going to be a good game. I thought was destined to be a really close game. Ended up being a very lopsided game, but a major statement by the Gold Coast Suns, who dominated in Darwin. 67-point winners over Hawthorne. 18-13-121 to 7-12-54. And unlike other games where the Hawks have at least gotten off to a good start, this one was never really close. This was just dominant from Gold Coast. The Suns are getting these home games in the top end because as part of their concessions with their poor performance throughout their first decade, Darwin and much of the North and much of the Northern Territory was added to their academy zoning. And so they've clearly been building up somewhat of a base over there. Seemed like most of the crowd were indeed in Suns colors. Another thing that helped that was that they had two Darwin-born and raised players in their side, and between them, Malcolm Rosas Jr. and Joel Jeffrey caused the opening trumpet of their club song to be played four times, Rosas kicking three goals in a behind, Jeffrey one goal in a behind, and they were two of the most exciting players throughout the on a night where pretty much everyone for the Suns was firing you can see how much it mattered to them that they were able to play in front of their friends and family, and I'm glad that the team as a whole stepped up alongside them. It's just too bad neither of them had a giant tent proclaiming support for them like Tom Green's gotten. This was just a complete, excellent showing by the Suns on all accounts. It was the most disciplined they've looked. They looked structured on both ends while still letting their better players improvise. Isaac Rankin looked awesome, making everything happen. Tuke Miller plays all over the ground and has good possessions. They capitalized on a night where the Hawks just didn't have it and really never let up, didn't show any sort of sympathy. And the Suns got way more chances than the Hawks did, and that all started from their ruck work. 
We knew that it was going to be a struggle this week for Hawthorne. They're still without Ned Reeves. Max Lynch, a.k.a. Maximum Lunch, was sidelined by his second concussion of the year. Meanwhile, Jared Witts dominated as expected. Hitouts 40-8. to Don't think I've ever seen a stat line like that before where a team managed only single digits in hitouts. Clearances were a bit more successful for Hawthorne because they've got guys like Harry Morrison and Tom Mitchell, but the Suns took plenty of advantage. Witt's helping his own case with nine clearances, Miller with six. David Swallow has been very good these past couple weeks. He had five himself. Matt Rowell had three, also had seven tackles, and actually had double-digit possessions this game with 16. He's been more of a follower, more impactful defensively. But with how well the Suns have been going as a whole, especially his draft mate Noah Anderson, the role has been fine for him. I was also really impressed with Caleb Graham, the big defender. It was his first appearance since round three, and the six foot five, twenty-one year old provided a really nice anchor defensively. The only drawback to his game is he's a bit on the slower side, but I thought he did a really nice job. His size created a lot of problems. He was the sort of stabilizing tall that the Suns needed in their back line. And that also allowed Lockie Weller to play all over the ground. Weller finished with 27 disposals, gained 937 meters, and really popped up everywhere. Brandon Ellis also had a very versatile game. Two goals, 24 disposals, eight marks, eight intercepts, six tackles. Took Miller, his usual self, with 24 disposals, eight marks, and six tackles. We mentioned Malcolm Rosas Jr.'s three goals. Bobby Archol also had three. Charlie Ballard. 13 intercepts and 6 marks, and Nick Holman, 13 tackles. Just an all-out dominant performance in what I thought would have been a game where each team had some pronounced advantages, where the overall product would have been a really tight one. Instead, the Suns were obviously way, way better in center clearances, but also just the superior team all over the ground. They made some Hawthorne players who looked really strong this year look very ineffective. I'm not going to look too much into this for Hawthorne. I've seen better teams play worse games. This was definitely their worst performance of the year. Against the Saints, they had a few bright spots. Those did not exist here. Chankwath Jath had trouble with Mabi Orchol in the South Sudanese battle. Sam Frost got a one-game suspension and just played very poorly. Frost is usually a really good tagger. Could not keep up with Isaac Rankin. And then he ended up grabbing a suspension in the second half. He flew into a contest for a ball on the ground pretty recklessly. Jarman Impey also could have gotten suspended, but ended up getting away with just a fine. He was tangled up with Ben Ainsworth. It seemed like Ainsworth initiated things, but then Impey dropped him with a hit to the back of the leg and kind of sat on him. After that, Rankin flew in to stick it to Impey. Could have been much worse than it was. I'm surprised the punishment for it wasn't a bit more severe. I called it from the way that Ainsworth and Impey got tied up. I expected Impey's punishment to be lighter as opposed to the contact that Frost initiated purely on his own. Although Frost was at least in the vicinity of the ball and could sort of be a football play, even if it was a reckless one that the league needs to discourage. I will say, to Hawthorne's credit, their forwards weren't bad. They just hardly ever got the ball because the ball was mostly in their back half for just about the entire game. Some stats of note for the Hawks. Tom Mitchell, 29 disposals and 7 marks. Harry Morrison's been on a nice little run as of late. He had 24 disposals, 9 marks, gained 605 meters. James Sicily gained 623 meters, but frankly... He sucked, as did most of the team. 
Hawks will have a nice chance to bounce back next week at the MCG against Collingwood with a young team that probably didn't have finals aspirations to begin with that can now really put those to bed at 4-7. and seven. I think it's easy enough for the Hawks to flush this one, move forward. I like their structure overall. I like where they are as a club. I think they're headed in the right direction, and this game shouldn't derail all the progress they've had. As for the Gold Coast Suns, they are 5-6. and six. They'll be in Darwin again next round to host North Melbourne. We are genuinely looking at a 500 Suns team going into the bye with some serious finals aspirations, especially looking at the schedule they have after that. Counting this round, they have five of six games at home going through round 17. Round 14, they host the Crows. Then they're at Port for round 15. Then they host Collingwood and Richmond the next two. That stretch, they could definitely pick up a couple wins, if not more. They've been showing well this season at Metricon. And through those matchups, we'll also get a greater sense of just how good of a coach Stewart Dew is. A lot of the Suns' best work this week could just be described as going through Jared Woods and other players' raw ability. When you got matchups against other potential finals teams, I think we'll really be able to see if Dew can adjust to the intricacies of each matchup well enough, or if he's just kind of riding this out. But I would definitely say wait to begin extension talks until we see what he can do against those teams. Don't jump on it too quickly. Alistair Clarkson is still in play. The Giants have not nabbed him yet, especially with how Mark McVay's been doing his first couple rounds. So you're saying you want to see what Stewart can do? <sighs> My puns are better than yours. My biggest takeaway from this game is it's the first time I've really thought that positively of Gold Coast's entire defense. Just about every defender they've had has had a good individual game. This time it was really the whole unit and how they all kind of were able to get into their individual roles and spots because of how Caleb Graham set the rest of them up. Graham was clearly the answer for Rory Thompson being out yet again. Played just three games after having not seen time in the AFL since 2018 with a host of injuries. Thought that he'd be a focal piece of their backline success. Instead, Graham may have found himself a permanent spot for the rest of the year. I think it's clear we're going to be talking about the Suns a lot over the next few rounds. This sets them up for a make-or-break spot where they either could go on a run to make their first finals appearance or come crashing down, show that they've wasted a lot of potential and a lot of talent, and suggest that the organization is in need of some serious changes, at least on the field. But like you hinted at, Seems to be going well off the field with those inroads they've made with the Northern Territory. It was cool to see them play in front of what was definitely a home crowd and just a good turnout altogether. And it was great to see so much Indigenous representation in the building as part of the Sir Doug Nichols round. I love seeing games out in Darwin and in some of these more remote locations, and I'm glad that they'll be back there again next week. My final observation from Darwin, you've noticed at venues like the MCG... Optus Stadium, the bench chairs are usually pretty nice. Maybe they're not on the level of, you know, European soccer team bench chairs where they're sponsored by airlines, so they're supposed to look like first-class seats. But the seats in Darwin are just like the plastic chairs you'd see on a pool deck or, you know, at a community center in the room where some low-level fundraising dinner is being hosted. I just thought it was really funny, and I'm sure we'll see the same in Alice Spring. There's just some sort of charm to that that you don't see in... North American professional sports that reminds you of just how far out into the country this game reaches. Even if 98% of the population lives in 2% of the land lining the coast, 
it's great to see that they're thinking still about all parts of Australia. I'm really excited for Alice Springs in round 18. What are their chairs going to look like? I'm going to be watching intently for that when that game rolls around. As for Gold Coast's opponent next week, North Melbourne exists. They are certainly a football team. We're a team. And they are certainly a team that lost to St. Kilda at Marvel Stadium by 53. Got more than doubled up St. Kilda 16-7-103, defeating North Melbourne 7-8-50, spoiling the party that could have been in Jack Zeeble's 250th game. There were some things that I did like for North Melbourne. I commented during the game how they're getting more immediate returns out of their youth than a team like West Coast for a variety of reasons. Jason Horn Francis continuing his strong early play in his career. Luke Davies Uniac doing a lot of good around the ball. Tristan Jerry is only 23, and he really had more of a supporting ruck role this week with a really physical matchup between Todd Goldstein and Patty Ryder, but Jerry still showed well. Nick Lorkey may have not scored, but he was in the right places along the ground. It's clear that Jed Anderson, who did have a goal and a very active game, is rubbing off on him. But this was the Saints' day, and it's no surprise considering their opponent and just how well they've been going for much of this season. The pieces that you'd expect excelled. Ryder and Marshall kept pace with Goldstein and Jerry. Jack Sinclair drove things from the back, as he often has. Max King kicked three goals. Jade Gresham continued his strong play forward. Bradley Hill was running all over the place. It's what you'd expect. I didn't watch this game that closely. I had the good fortune of getting to watch Colcar, as I like to call it. But I'm going to ask you this because it's happened for me all the time. Almost every week this year, every St. Kilda win, some unexpected contributor has really made a name for themselves and left an impression on me. You know, at one point this year, that was Daniel McKenzie. And then went over Geelong, it was Zach Jones. Who is it for you this game? Well, firstly, I'll say we would have probably noticed Zach Jones a lot more had we gotten into the sport earlier. He plays a somewhat similar role to his older brother, Nathan, who played for Melbourne for a while. I'll give a couple names. Sebastian Ross had been a quieter contributor for a lot of the year, but with the goal of the week nominee, he had a very long goal after he had a really nice fake. He ended up standing out to me. And Mitch Owens kicked the first two goals of his career within 17 seconds. He pounced on the ball when given the opportunity. North Melbourne weren't cleanly fielding the Sharon a lot of the time, and that left all sorts of ground ball gets on which the Saints were able to capitalize. Owens did a lot of good there. If you were looking at maybe rankings in terms of who to nominate for the rising star this round, I'd say Owens would have been second behind Sam DeConnick. Honestly, North came out of the gates all right. They were aggressive. They were tackling a lot early. I liked their approach on that front. They were struggling to get meaningful chances because Simpkin had some poor kicks into the 50. The Saints enjoyed their first multi-goal lead when Patty Ryder, who was to the side of the ruck contest as Rowan Marshall took one, had a nice spin and goal off a step. Less than a minute later, Tim Memory stretched it out to 18. Only one goal throughout all of the second quarter after some surprising misses for Max King, Zach Jones, Marcus Windhager, who had some solid contributions throughout the ground. It was Cooper Sharman who ended up ending that goal drought, being set up by Jack Sinclair at about the two-thirds mark of the second quarter. Once the Saints were out for the second half, the route was on. Marcus Windhager had the first goal of the third quarter somewhat 
quickly. Even after Jack Ziegel had a milestone goal that we all expected, things were stabilized pretty quickly. Some good running from Design Wagoning Miller as well as Bradley Hill creating some good chances and largely conversions for St. Kilda. I mentioned those two Owens goals. Those were in the middle of the third quarter. Nothing really was able to slow the Saints down. They had six goals in the third, four in the fourth. Seemed to take the gas off somewhat near the end. When you're close to doubling up your opponent, even if you have a chance to gain more in percent, I kind of get that. North conceded 100 points for the seventh straight game, and that was despite only being minus one in hitouts and being plus 14 in the clearances. Just goes to show you how well St. Kilda were able to keep pressure around the ball throughout the game, as well as some of their issues with making those clearances really matter, getting good chances into their forward 50. Yeah, noteworthy individual stat lines. Bradley Hill, another great game. A goal, a behind, 33 disposals, 9 marks, and 664 meters gained. You alluded to Jack Sinclair driving play out of the back end for the Saints. He had 32 disposals and 10 marks and gained 764 meters. Jay Gresham, 2 goals, 2 behinds, 30 disposals. Seb Ross, a goal and 28 disposals. Zach Jones, 21 disposals and 10 tackles. Callum Wilkie, 19 disposals and 12 marks. Mitch Owens, two goals and 10 tackles. Wilkie is someone that we definitely didn't notice these past couple seasons, but he has been a really important defensive force this season. Seems to have taken some big strides in his game to get to that point where we're so aware of him. And with Sinclair back there as well, he doesn't have to worry about moving the ball as much. He can focus much more on those immediate contests. Meanwhile, Sinclair looks like he's already a lock for all Australians. Jai Simkin, you mentioned some of his kicking struggles. He still finished with 29 disposals and gained 585 meters. Was able to reel some of that in later on. Jack Zebel, a goal and 10 tackles. Jed Anderson had pretty much the best all-around statistical day of any player on either team. 28 disposals, 12 tackles, 8 marks, 7 clearances, and a goal. But this was never much of a game. What was the game was the 261st BFL-AFL incarnation of Kolkar. The teams entered the game completely even on the ledger. They had both shown well the week before. There was a wave of momentum surrounding this game, and I bet it was felt even more throughout Melbourne, Victoria, and probably all of Australia. Nearly 81,000 fans were there, the second biggest crowd of the year after Anzac Day, and the game delivered in every way, down to the wire like you want one of these games to be. In the end, Collingwood came out on top with depth performances driving the way for a four-point win, 11-13-79 to Carlton, 11-9-75. Yes, this was your game, Ethan, but I was watching this just as much as I was watching St. Kilda and North, if not more because that game was out of hand. I was watching right alongside our father throughout this one. I made him stay up for it, and he did not regret it one bit. This game was shaped early by Jacob Wiedering's AC joint injury that's likely going to hold him out six weeks. Hopefully, he can make a faster recovery like Jamie Elliott did for Collingwood. Elliott was very actively involved in this game, but the guys who really stood out, John Noble, Nathan Murphy, and our guy Mason Cox. Cox got to play in his appropriate sort of ruck role. He got to play some taking marks in the defensive 50, some in the forward 50, Got his first goal of the year and a big one at that to put the pies up by 11 with 17 minutes left. It was a great back and forth fourth quarter, though Collingwood never gave up the lead. 
though it certainly felt like they did with some of the momentum swings. I felt like Carlton were in great shape to win this game until about 12 minutes left when Zach Fisher missed. That kept the lead at 17. It got as big as 23 as Ollie Henry picked up where he left off last week with another goal. There were times when you thought this game was completely over. Henry took a bit of a beating coming down for a mark in the forward 50 off a kick from Elliott to bring the lead to 79-56 with 8.57 left. And that turned out to be the last time Collingwood scored. And much to my surprise, it turned out to barely be enough. Matthew Owies scored less than a minute later. Charlie Curnow got his third of the game from 54 with about five minutes left. Could have been closer than that had Darcy Moore not gotten away with a pretty blatant hold on Curnow. John Noble had a big tackle on injury sub Jack Carroll with about 220 left. And yet the game still came down to the final moments because the Blues went end to end. Curnow scored with a minute five to go. And because of that 6-6-6 rule, it meant that a lot came down to that clearance, which the Blues ended up getting. They ended up getting it into the forward 50. Darcy Moore actually made a mistake where he should have conceded to behind, but ended up knocking the ball out of bounds with 47 seconds left for a throw-in. The Blues never really got a clean set shot off after that, but did have a chance. Jack Silvani kicked a snap with 19 seconds left that went for a behind. They were able to still keep the pressure on. Collingwood could never get a clear, get a clean mark, but there was never really a substantial chance after that. Though, right at the siren, Josh Dacos did grab Sam Walsh's shoulder. Could have been called high contact. No call there. Game over. Collingwood wins. What ended up just being a really fun game with a whole lot of twists and turns. Collingwood led by 17 early in the second quarter. Went into halftime down six. Couldn't kick accurately for much of the third. Neither team could. And yet they went into the fourth quarter up 13 and managed to hold on in the final moments in what was just a game that delivered on everything we wanted out of this rivalry and then some. Hard to... It felt like Noble had so many more tackles than just the four he did, but that's because he had two super important ones late. I really thought that the tackle he had on Jack Carroll was enough to win the game initially, and then a few minutes earlier, he had a clutch tackle on Patty Dow to stop another chance right after that Matthew Owies goal. That kept the margin at 17 for the moment. And even though Carlton did get two more goals, there could have been so much potential for more had Noble not gotten that stop right there. I know Collingwood fans were very happy with his work in one percenters in recent weeks. And all of that came to fruition in the clutch on Sunday night. A testament to the guys who did step up for Collingwood would be listing the ones who we didn't really talk about much. It was a pretty quiet game for Will Hoskin Elliott. Isaac Quainer didn't do a ton. Other than a couple of sequences in the second half, it was relatively quiet for Patrick Lipinski. Darcy Cameron didn't have a huge game. Nick Dacos didn't do a ton. Braden Maynard didn't factor in a ton after early sequences. And yet, because of those depth performances, Collingwood were able to win this game. And in doing so, improved to 6-5. and five. Well, I think they're still a step behind the best nine teams. Mathematically speaking, their finals hopes are very much alive. And looking at their upcoming schedule, they'll have a bunch of chances to impact the finals picture, especially with how difficult their schedule gets to close the season. Their final four games are going to be an absolute gauntlet. So... At the very least, those teams they'll be chasing, they'll have a chance to chase them down directly, even if it'll still be an uphill battle. You mentioned Lipinski 
had a couple big plays in the second half. He had the goal that actually ended up putting the Pies ahead for good, which is weird looking back and seeing that it happened with 13.43 to go in the third quarter. It really did feel like Carlton had taken the lead from Collingwood at times with the momentum that they had gained, but the Pies held their ground. And even though Maynard was quiet, Nathan Murphy was massive in the early goings. He had six intercepts by the midpoint of the second quarter, finished with nine. Jeremy Howe with 10. I told you he was more than just a high flyer. Whenever one person didn't step up for Collingwood, another did. And I really thought that Jack Ginevan's two easy misses were going to end up figuring in big time. Credit to the rest of Collingwood's list for making those not matter. Those misses and the way the second quarter went, even when Collingwood went back in front of the third, I didn't feel until that Fisher miss that the Pies were ever in control of this game. I guess a few minutes before that, when they got the two goals in 35 seconds, first by Cox and then Tyler Brown, when nobody picked him up in the goal square for all the bodies that were in there, somehow nobody matched up with him and he ended up with an easy goal. Up until that point, I had felt no matter what the score was from early in the second quarter up until that stage in the fourth, that Carlton had this in the bag. Then I felt Collingwood was in complete control and it ended up coming down to the wire. Just everything you want out of a game in terms of you had good offensive sequences, good defensive moments, unlikely contributors instead of the regular stars. You had moments where both teams really were able to shine and just leaves you hungry for more. And I'm so glad they play again. The odds of their round 23 meeting not being significant for at least one team in terms of maybe getting a home final or into the top four or into the eight altogether is basically zero. It's going to be awesome. The thing is, even when Collingwood didn't have the lead in the second quarter, once they were able to adjust to Wiedering being out, the game was played at their pace. Carlton were having to keep up with them for the rest of the first half. And I still felt like the game was never as slow as Michael Voss and the Blues wanted, even when you thought they were more in control. It is weird to think that Carlton wanted the game slower, but with just how frenetic Collingwood's pace can be when their younger forward group is going as well as they can, a more metered approach from Carlton, you thought, might be the way to go. I'm surprised we haven't yet mentioned how much Jordan Degoe impacted this contest. A few quiet weeks for him heading into this one, had his fingerprints all over this game. 24 disposals, 505 meters gained in a goal. He and Jack Crisp were forces throughout the middle of the ground. Crisp with 27 disposals and 6 tackles as well. Nick Dacos might have had a down game, but Josh was very active from halfback. 23 disposals, 10 marks, 512 meters gained. Along with his 10 intercepts in the back, Jeremy Howe had 20 disposals and gained 590 meters. John Noble with 21 disposals and 9 marks in addition to the 4 tackles. Always impacting the immediate space around contests, even when he or the man he was on didn't have the Sharon. And in addition to his goal in behind, Mason Cox had 11 hitouts and six marks. So happy that he got another chance. Happy that there was no damage from that compound finger dislocation that he suffered against Fremantle because he was so impactful in keeping Collingwood in the lead. And it was just awesome to hear USA chance at the G. Also, shout out to the fans who brought the American flag and the Texas flag. In addition, Mason Cox is starting his own podcast, so welcome to the family, I guess. would love to collaborate. Stats of note for Carlton, who, again, wouldn't have really had a shot to win this game had Collingwood not missed some relatively easy shots. Sam Walsh with a performance that could end up getting him the three Brownlow votes. 
35 disposals and 588 meters gained. He also scored a goal in the second quarter where Carlton arguably played their best. Shocker, Carlton being their best in the second. Though the fact that they stayed with the Pies in the fourth quarter was surprising and promising for the rest of their season. Sam Doherty wasn't quite as prominent as the numbers suggested, but still had a nice game. 31 disposals, 6 marks, he gained 605 meters. George Hewitt, 31 disposals and 7 tackles. I thought it was one of Adam Chera's better games. I thought both Adams played pretty well, actually. Chera, 30 disposals, he gained 668 meters. Adam Saad, by the way, want to note there was a fan waving a Lebanese flag supporting him. He had 27 disposals, 11 intercepts, and gained 504 meters. I like some of the work that he did further up the ground. Saad tends to be stationed in the defensive 50 so much and running and kicking the ball out from there. But he ended up engaging in some contests more toward the middle of the ground. And I think that when Carlton were at their best, that helped counter some of Collingwood's bigger runs by stopping them in their tracks. Patrick Cripps has been so good that a 25 disposal six mark performance could be considered a quiet one. Charlie Curnow finished with four goals and four goals, two behinds. Matthew Owies with two goals. Despite scoring a nice early goal, displaying the sense to attack an open goal square from beyond 50, Corey Durden didn't get the ball a ton. He finished with just the one, but I still really like how he's played. This is a loss that's going to sting for Carlton, no doubt, especially heading into the bye. But big picture, still. They enter that by at 8-3. and three. They have Essendon coming out of it, then get to play Richmond in a huge Thursday night game. Playing them Thursday night both times this year. That's interesting. They've got the Dockers after that, then the Saints. This is going to be a really fun stretch, and as much as in the past couple of years we saw Carlton as boring, they've been anything but that this year, and I look forward to watching them more throughout this second half of the season. The final game of the round was not quite as exciting. There were some moments where it looked like Essendon had a shot to really catch up with Port Adelaide. It was a rainy night at the Adelaide Oval. And then neither team kicked a goal in the entire fourth quarter as the power kind of bled out the clock. They won this one by 16-9-12-66 to 6-14-50. Port Adelaide jumped out to an early lead as a lot of people would have expected them to. They kicked four goals in the first quarter. Thing is... Both teams had the same number of scoring shots. Essendon were just not kicking straight at all. They had zero goals, six behinds for the first quarter. And even though they had similar scoring shot numbers throughout the game, if not exceeding port at times, that early hole into which they dug themselves ended up being their undoing. Charlie Dixon had an immediate impact in his return, scoring in the middle of the first quarter. His raw stature and physicality are something that Port had clearly been missing, and they used that to their advantage big time. I think that helped elevate the play of some of their midfielders as well because it meant that Connor Rosie and Zach Butters had clearer targets and also meant less pressure on some of the other taller forwards for Port. It was really cool to see Dixon take one of his typical marks kind of falling backwards, kind of like a two-handed Odell Beckham catch. It was just good to have him back out there. He was one of the first players we really became familiar with and he obviously takes Port Adelaide to a new level, even though they've constantly shown they've got a whole bunch of other quality players. I think one of the neat things, even if his stats weren't that huge in this game, just the versatility that Sam Powell Pepper has shown, he's really evolved into a marquee role. I said in an earlier round recap that Powell Pepper is due for one wow play at least every game. I think this time it might have been some of his ridiculously hard tackles. 
More than it was his goal kicking, he ended up with a goal and four behinds. But the six tackles are most indicative of the impact that he had on this game. Port got out to a 38-point lead in the late second quarter. Essendon managed to put it back to 31 by halftime. And then the rain came down, and the rain can change absolutely everything. It was really pouring at halftime and throughout much of the third quarter. And that was where Essendon was actually able to take advantage. They kicked four goals to one despite the slippery conditions. And it's a case where Ben Rudden's tactics paid off because during the week he had the Bombers trained with the sprinklers on at Windy Hill to get them prepared for those conditions. Maybe Fremantle should try something like that. Maybe Geelong should try something like that next time they're going to play in a wet game. Water is wet, people. Well, is it? Because, I mean, being wet is like the property of having water on you. So unless you consider like each individual water molecule having other water molecules on it you could technically say it's not really wet oh gosh water's wet and water's also for sharks and stuff no goals to speak of in the fourth quarter it was where port were able to lock down somewhat on defense alira lear had a big tackle on alec waterman to save a goal with just under 14 minutes left and even though Essendon had more clearances, especially from the center, more inside 50s, they just hadn't done enough with those. Nonetheless, was happy to see that a player for them also had their first goal of the season in their first game returning from injury, that being Harry Jones, who I thought had done some really good things in the mid to late part of 2021. Another thing to note is the, um, I guess we'll still call it a conversation between Dyson Heppel and Darcy Parrish at quarter time. It was very clear that both were frustrated, especially Parrish. We've been on Parrish as have as have a lot of people for having a lot of possessions, but not being impactful with them. Noticed in the second half, especially that he started playing more forward. So clearly he sensed some urgency and the need for him to be contributing further up the ground. I'm not sure if Heppel's remarks impacted that or if it was something strategic from Rutman's staff or if he did it himself. But regardless, that's what you need to do, Darcy. Keep doing it. As much as I liked Rutten's adjustments, you could also argue you had a whole week to prepare without Mason Redmond, and it took them a while to get comfortable playing without him. Nick Hines ended up, as expected, having to kind of jettison a lot of the play out of the back end. He gained 673 meters and recorded 26 disposals. But I thought at least as badly as this game started, if this could represent Essendon's season in a microcosm, that would be all right. Crappy start. Make some adjustments, maybe don't come out on top, but at least finish respectably. And they certainly were more and more respectable as this game went on. Also having to step up in Redmond's absence was Jaden Laverty, who ended up with 10 intercepts. I expected that he'd also have to be more of a mover and a shaker in the back lines because no one player by themselves would be able to replace the ground that Redmond gained. Laverty only gained 211 meters and only got 13 touches, but when he did get the ball, he did good things with it to help Essendon start back out of their own end. Darcy Parrish, as we mentioned, 39 disposals and 6 marks. We'll note that 18 of Parrish's possessions were contested. That's a lot more than usual. Nick Martin probably is best showing since round one. He finished with a goal, two behinds, 25 disposals, 12 marks, gained 576 meters. Jai Caldwell returned to the lineup with 10 tackles, and Jordan Ridley returned, finished with 8 intercepts. For the power, Ollie Wines doing his usual thing with 29 disposals, 542 meters gained. 
Zach Butters, a nice bounce back performance in what's otherwise been a really quiet year from him. 24 disposals, a goal and a behind. Connor Rosie, 24 disposals, seven tackles and six marks. Todd Marshall, eight marks. He actually kicked him behind. It was shocking, but he didn't have a goal. Also actually missed one completely at one point. The rain definitely impacting him in that respect, but he's still the most accurate goal kicker in the game right now. I believe he's at 75% in terms of kicking for goal on 24 shots this year. 18 goals, four behinds, just two misses. This year already has been a big step forward, even when Port was struggling early on. And it's great to see Butters and Rosie building off each other. We expected that to continue from where they left off last season. But Rosie in particular was played too far forward for a while. And now that they've remedied that, they seem to be getting back to what they do best. And it looks like they'll be together for a few more seasons because they got extensions right before this one. I said Port Adelaide were likely to bounce back after their clunker against Geelong. They largely did. Wasn't an A-plus performance by the power, but they played a good enough first half that they were kind of able to play the rest of the game on cruise control. And while they struggled with the wet conditions in the third quarter, I think they used them to their advantage down the stretch to make sure that there was no further drama. I was going to conclude this episode by asking about the Suns and their legitimacy, but We've already talked about the importance of their upcoming schedule, and we'll be able to discuss them more in our report card segment before round 13 when they have their buy. Just a heads up, the six teams that will be off this week that we'll be giving a bit of a closer examination to are the Blues, Bombers, Giants, Power, Saints, and Tigers. In turn, this is going to be a pretty action-packed week for us as we'll also be doing our round 12 preview, but right now... We've got to close out this episode, as we always do with our recaps. Let's look at the Mark of the Week and Goal of the Week nominees. For the first time in a while, the right mark and right goal were selected by the fans as the nominees for Round 10. For Mark of the Week, that was Jeremy Howe hanging on Matt Taverner's shoulder. The Mark of the Week nominees for this round, two for Narn, despite their defeat to Fremantle. You had Charlie Spargo over Darcy Tucker and Sam Wiedemann above Brennan Cox. The other one was Todd Goldstein hanging on the back of Mason Wood next to the goal square. I'm having a hard time choosing between Goldstein and Spargo for this week. Goldstein's hang was more impressive, but Spargo got a little extra lift off Tucker that I really liked, and he also was able to bring it down more cleanly. I have a feeling that because of him securing the ball on the way down, you probably like Spargo over Goldstein. That's correct. I think it's also more impressive because he doesn't have the size that Goldstein has. He's only 5'9". Goal of the week. Last week, Joel Jeffries' over-the-shoulder kick with his back to the goal was the obvious winner. He is nominated once again this week. In fact, it is the first time ever that two players have been nominated for either mark or goal in consecutive weeks. It's both Jeffrey and Jeremy Cameron. I didn't think this was even Cameron's best goal of the round. I thought... The one where he was spinning out of a tackle was his best. But in this one, he received a handball from Brad Close, held it against his backside with his left hand, a little party trick, and then he snapped it around the corner, left foot shot from the left pocket. Jeffrey, playing in Darwin, turned and kicked with his right foot from the left boundary, and it bounced through from a tough angle. The other nominee, Sebastian Ross, he sold a fake handball. And then with an open goal square, kicked a bouncing goal from a ridiculous 67 meters. Max King should get some credit to help shepherd it through. 
I don't know if there's a clear winner here, but I think because of the angle, I'm going to go with Jeffrey. I have a really tough time deciding on this one. The fact that Jeffrey had to spin into the kick was impressive, but I really liked Jez's play overall as well. A goal of the week nominee doesn't just have to be impressive because of how you kick it, and I think the fact that he got the ball the way he did makes his even more impressive. I might actually vote for Cameron over Jeffrey in this case. I still think there's a chance Ross could win it, and you can make the argument for it just off of the sheer length of the goal. And the fact that he had that nice sell beforehand, though I can't think that he did it single-handedly like the others did just because of the distance it went and the help that Max King gave. Nonetheless, one of the longest goals of the season with ease. I still think the Myers spinning goal should have been in consideration. And also, Devin Robertson should have been able to at least sniff the top three with his zigzagging effort himself. Just a loaded week for marks and goals, especially the latter. Even though it was Lockie Schultz's goal, he could have considered Michael Frederick's tap as another worthy nominee. I think this is one where there are a lot of good ones, no real standout. But like I said, I would give it to Jeffrey for the second straight week, though. His goal from round 10. That might be goal of the year material, though. I still love Dan Kerbis from round two, which didn't even win goal of the week. He didn't win round nine either. I do not get it. I mean, you can lose the vote for goal of the week and still win goal of the year. I think Shea Bolton somehow wasn't nominated his round last year for his mark and still won it. So there's precedent for it. I guess technically by number of games played, we're at the halfway mark for the year. Calendar-wise with the bye weeks, we're not quite halfway yet. But we've been amazed so many times, whether it's with a collective game and individual play. And this has been so much fun. So thanks for tuning in. We look forward to talking a bunch more over the course of this week and over the remainder of the season. In addition to all the progress reports we're doing the next three weeks, the round previews and recaps, look out for our ranking episode in just a little bit. We're not going to be doing some sort of power ranking of the teams. We're going to be ranking the 18 Sir Doug Nichols jumpers for this season. 19 County Frio's Clash 1. And the 18 Club Songs. Just a fun thing that we've been meaning to do for a while, and we felt this would be a good time to do it. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Castle Media. You can find Brian Harambe, who is now sleeping next to me and has been making noise in the background for a lot of this episode, on Instagram, not Twitter, at CatNamedGrian. You can find me on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. You can find me and Ethan and this podcast at Americans Footy. Thank you so much for tuning in. I can't believe we're at the halfway point, close to the midway point of our first season doing this. We've come to enjoy this so much that I see us continuing this for a long time. And I can't believe it's not butter. Good time of day, I guess.